Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the uh, Diplomatic History Channel here at New Books Network. I'm your host, uh, Grant Golub. Uh, I'm an Ernest May Fellow in History and Policy um, at the Harvard Kennedy School, and I'm getting my PhD at the London School of Economics. Uh, I'm delighted to be joined today by Pete Millwood, who is a uh, postdoctoral fellow in the Society of Fellows in the Humanities at the University of Hong Kong. And we're here to talk about his book today, uh, Improbable Diplomats, How Ping-Pong Players, Musicians, and Scientists Remade U.S.-China Relations. Um, Pete uh, researches the history of the Chinese world's international and transnational relations, uh, particularly with the United States. Um, Before he joined Hong Kong University, he was an LSE fellow in East Asian history at the London School of Economics, uh, and he's also held postdoctoral fellowships uh, both in China and the UK. Uh, He has his PhD from St. Anthony's College uh, at Oxford, uh, and he's also um, got a BA uh, from the London School of Economics. So Pete, great to have you on the pod. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Ron. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Um, So... I think it would be helpful if you could give our um, listeners sort of a a broad overview of um, your first book, uh, which was published with Cambridge University Press at the end of last year. If you could really tell us um, what this book is really all about and and what you were trying to achieve with it. Sure. Um, So it's a book on the 1970s, on the rapprochement decade between the United States and, and China. And one of the things I was trying to achieve was telling the story of the reconnection of American and Chinese societies. There's a developed historiography, first written by political scientists and then by historians, on the high-level diplomatic relationship between the US and Chinese governments. And I think that historiography is is very rich, still very useful. But when I started the research for this, this project, or actually when I was researching another project, and then... I came across some materials in the archives relating to to this this book project, Uh, I was surprised at the wealth of of evidence for telling this this story of the reconnection between the two societies and how this hadn't really been told in the the existing historiography. So I wanted to use some of that evidence to tell the history of connections between, uh, as I say in the the title, ping pong players, musicians and scientists, but also a range of other individuals, other groups within Chinese and and US societies, and how their reconnection played a part in the overall Sino-American relationship. Yeah, I mean, it's really fascinating. I think that, you know, people are sort of broadly familiar with, uh, you know, the idea of ping pong diplomacy, which really kind of set the stage for uh, the beginning of the rapprochement between the People's Republic and China and the United States. But one of the really fascinating um, aspects of your book is really sort of broadening that out and saying, you know, it was so much more than this. And as you say, really reconnecting the two societies, which is happening um, in parallel to sort of the reconnection of the of the high-level diplomatic relationship between uh, the United States and, and the People's Republic of China. Um, I was wondering if you could, uh, before we really get into your book, I was wondering if you could tell um, our listeners a little bit about the Sino-American relationship sort of leading up to the 1970s. I mean, we don't need to you know go back decades and decades, but you know, the last 10 years or so um, before uh, you know, Nixon goes to China in 1972. What's that relationship looking like? Sure. Um, so maybe it's worthwhile going back two decades, I think, or, or just over two decades, um, to, to 1949 and the establishment of the People's Republic of China. In the wake of the establishment of the PRC, of the success of the Chinese communists in the Civil War, some Americans, including some in government, had hoped that they'd be able to continue some kind of relationship with the new communist red China. But Mao had other ideas and 
the two countries, particularly after the American and then Chinese entry into the Korean War in 1950, the two countries really um, had a, a period of, of hostility that lasted two decades. Of course, during the Korean War, Americans and Chinese were fighting in the battlefields of Korea. But even after the armistice of that conflict, there remained um, a lot of hostility between the two sides. This was felt in a Cold War geopolitical level, for example, in several crises over, over Taiwan in the 1950s. And then during the 1960s, I think it sort of settled into mutual suspicion on the two sides, although uh, one aspect of that suspicion was still geopolitical in that um, the Chinese were involved in the Vietnam conflict that America was pursuing in, in the 1960s. This separation on a geopolitical level was also felt on a societal level, and there was almost total isolation between the two societies. There were a small number of Americans who chose to continue living in China or even migrated to China in the 1950s or 1960s. But these were people with very strong political persuasions who were drawn to Maoism, drawn to the Chinese Revolution. And for the most part, ordinary Americans and ordinary Chinese had almost no contact with one, one another whatsoever before the 1970s. So why, when Nixon becomes president uh, in 1969, him and his national security advisor, later Secretary of State Henry Kissinger, I mean, they, they're really starting to, to want to rethink this relationship. What, what's sort of the initial thinking behind trying to, um, you know, cast aside some of this isolation and, and at least try and establish or reestablish contact between uh, Beijing and Washington? I think we might say that there were at least three important factors that guided Nixon and Kissinger to the decision to try to reach out uh, to, to China. Uh, one is the Vietnam War that I already mentioned. Nixon wanted to bring an end to American involvement in the conflict, and he believed that, as I mentioned already, Beijing's role in, in the conflict backing the North Vietnamese could mean that they uh, a relationship with Beijing, a US relationship with Beijing, could help bring an end to the conflict. The second important factor that's been dwelled on in great detail in the historiography is the, the Cold War geostrategic competition with the Soviet Union. China and the Soviet Union had experienced a split that was powerfully felt from 1960 onwards, but had been even perhaps more powerfully felt in the late 1960s with border clashes in on China's north border with the Soviet Union. And I think here Nixon and Kissinger perceived a, an opportunity to reconnect uh, reconnect with China and to themselves benefit from closer Sino-American ties that would help in their pursuit of detente, but also long-term competition with the Soviet Union. And finally, I think certainly for Nixon, there was a genuine interest in reconnecting with the Chinese people. He talks about this in his famous 1967 foreign affairs article, but I think, and I think he was genuinely interested in having China, as he put it, sort of brought back into the family of nations, for having China um, reintegrated in some way into the world community, because at the hands of the United States, China had been ostracized from the US-led international order, at least that part of, of the international order. And I think Nixon, after two decades of this attempt to isolate China, believed that there was value in, in reconnecting with, with China. And and on the on the on the Chinese side of the equation, I mean, I think you, you got into some of it a little bit. You know, the um, simmering tension that almost explodes in 1969 between Beijing and Moscow uh, over those border clashes. But what's sort of the Chinese motivation for um, you know reciprocating some of these uh, American overtures? I mean, I think the opportunity is sort of mirrored on the Chinese side, at least in the last two aspects. And then there's one um, final aspect for, for the Chinese, that is that is Taiwan. So I think there is this geostrategic aspect. China would probably benefit even more than the United States in, in closer Sino-American ties because they're directly threatened by the Soviet Union. At this point, there's a number of war scares, not only in 69, but also in the years after that. And I think this is perhaps Mao's most immediate motivation for seeking uh, or, or at least reciprocating the American interest in, in the relationship. I also think that there's some mirroring of, of Nixon's interest in reconnecting the two societies. It's perhaps stronger a little bit later in, in the relationship, but I think Mao is 
it is interested in this. And then finally, and I think very importantly for the Chinese side, there is Taiwan. The United States was perhaps the key reason why the Chinese Civil War had not concluded in the year year or so after 1949 with a Chinese a PRC, a Chinese communist invasion of Taiwan, where Chiang Kai-shek had uh, fled at the conclusion of the Chinese Civil War in 1949. And although the United States had been somewhat ambivalent about protecting Chiang Kai-shek immediately after 1949, once the Korean War breaks out, um, the United States and Truman do, do protect, protect Chiang. And therefore, in the early 1970s, I believe Mao also is motivated by, to negotiate with the United States in the hopes of persuading the United States to withdraw from Taiwan and therefore perhaps facilitating in the long term the, uh, the overthrow of the Chiang regime and uh, the, the unification of China as Mao would have it. Right. So Nixon goes to China in 1972 and it's in February 1972, which had followed a, a visit from from Kissinger in the in the summer of of seventy one, and you know these were considered uh, successful visits, and really sort of you know set the stage for the decade long um, thawing of relations, or you know decade or so thawing of relations between the two countries. But you know in your book you talk about sort of the the lower level, but also extremely consequential you know society society connections that are also um, really enriching uh, the the remaking of this relationship so I think a lot of our listeners would be familiar um, with the visit uh, to China in 1971 by the US table tennis team um, but what happens after that in terms of some of these um, really important uh, types of, of cultural exchanges that are happening I mean how does as Nixon and, and, and Kissinger are trying to open up to China, how do these initial types of people-to-people exchanges and visits, how are those happening? What's that process like? So I think one important thing we can say about this process is that it begins before the summit diplomacy of, of Nixon and Mao and, and Zhou Enlai, and then it continues alongside this. So the ping-pong visit is in April 1971, and is and takes place after there's been some secret back channels between the two governments before there's been um, before Kissinger's first visit and there were other visits by ordinary Americans for example a group of graduate students um, to China before Kissinger's first July 1971 visit the graduate students were in Beijing at the time that Kissinger uh, Kissinger arrived so these society society contacts are, are taking place as I said before, before and then alongside the, even the earlier stages of the high-level, um, summit-level diplomacy. And then they continue, uh, they continue to develop, encouraged by this, as you, I think, correctly say, by the success of Kissinger's, visit, Kissinger's visits and then of the 1972 Nixon summit. Chinese begin going to the United States. The first official delegation of Chinese visitors to the United States is a return ping-pong visit that I think has received some scholarly attention, but perhaps not not as much scholarly attention as the first visit um, by the Americans to China, but I think was another very important moment in the relationship that confirmed, particularly to Chinese leaders, that they could begin sending delegations of, of Chinese athletes, but soon Chinese musicians, Chinese scientists and so forth to the United States. And then there are other high-profile visits. For example, the Philadelphia Orchestra goes to China in 1973. There's the visit of a famous Shenyang acrobatic troupe to the United States um, in the same year. But then there are also a very large number, dozens and then eventually hundreds of delegations that are less high-profile, but I think also very important in thickening out the relationship. So I look at, for example, the visits of of scientists, and uh, there were delegations sent in many different fields in both directions throughout the 1970s that helped recreate transnational communities between the two sides and reconnect um, academics who'd often worked together before 1949 and then had an opportunity in the 1970s to begin working together again. Mm. So you, you mentioned uh, the Chinese ping, uh, you know, tabletop, excuse me, table tennis team's visit to the United States, um, which hasn't received uh, as much attention as the Americans going to China. What's their visit like in the U.S.? 
The visit is largely successful and it's certainly very high profile. They are warmly received um, by large groups of well-wishers, many Americans, but also some Chinese Americans who come out. The games that they play across the country, the exhibition games they play across the country are, are very well attended. They're exceptionally well attended for table tennis games, for ping pong games with you know, thousands, in some cases more than 10,000 um, spectators. And on the whole, it's a successful visit, but it's also a site for political protests in some cases, political protests by Americans against the Vietnam War. In other cases, by political protests by some Chinese Americans who, against the presence of Chinese communists on, on US soil, who are joined as well by other uh, hard-right conservatives in the United States, many of whom are Christians, who again protest the presence of, of Chinese communist representatives in the United States. But I think on the whole, it's the beginning of a, a successful exchange program um, rather than uh, being defined by those protests. So what, in terms of, I mean, just sticking with, with the, the Chinese uh, ping pong team coming to the U.S., I mean, how, how is this visit facilitated? I mean, is, is, there, is this happening sort of in conjunction with government? Uh, is this happening independently? I mean, how are these, how is this return visit actually organized? A very good question. So there's a few factors that influenced how it was decided this visit would take place. One of the factors is a, is a practical one. The American Table Tennis Association that had been invited to China in 1971 was an amateur organization. Uh, you know, as we've already alluded to, table tennis was not perhaps the most high-profile sport in the United States, and the United States was not the most high-profile um, table tennis team in the world. So the, the amateur ping pong players that went to China in 1971, one of the questions they asked of their Chinese hosts was who would pay for rescheduling their return flights from Japan where they'd been competing at a world championship because th these individual players r really had limited budgets and the association itself had a very limited budget. So this is uh, offset by the involvement of another organization, the National Committee on US-China Relations, which is contacted as a result of the first ping pong visit to facilitate initially an invitation to uh, the Chinese to reciprocate and visit the United States, and then is heavily involved in the planning and the hosting of the second leg, which is jointly hosted in the United States by the US Table Tennis Association and the National Committee on US-China Relations. Now, the National Committee was and, and is a non-governmental organization it had been a private organization founded in 1966 to encourage American engagement with China in a broad sense. Initially, it was focused on public education about, about China. It advocated for discussion about US-China policy at a time where the containment strategy was, uh, was continuing in, in the late 1960s. And then in the 19, early 1970s, and with this ping pong visit, it becomes directly involved in the relationship in the form of uh, in the form of facilitating exchanges. Now, the question of government involvement is is an important one. The Chinese government was was heavily involved on their side in sending the team. Zhou Enlai personally oversaw the selection of who was sent to the United States, and then briefed them beforehand, and and then afterwards, that is the premier of of China. But on the American side, the Chinese had insisted that this be a visit that was hosted by the American people and that it was not to be a government-orchestrated exchange. Now, that didn't mean that the U.S. government wasn't interested in, in the exchange. Nixon was closely interested in the exchange. He was involved in discussions about the planning um, of, of the exchange. But they had to, the U.S. government had to be involved in a somewhat hands-off way. They appointed, Nixon appointed an advisor, John Scarley, to be seconded to the National Committee for the duration of the visit. And he was sort of Nixon's point man um, during, the, dur during the visit. And he gave advice to the National Committee and sometimes tried to sway them on some of their decisions. But in general, this was a privately run, run exchange. It was also a privately funded exchange. And the National Committee spent a lot of the time before the April 1972 return leg uh, fundraising across the country and seeking donations to facilitate the visit. The National Committee later did receive partial US government funding. But in this first instance, this was 
I think we can say a, a government facilitated exchange, but one that was nonetheless run on the ground by private organizations and private individuals. Mm. I, you, you mentioned when you were talking about the, the, the National Committee on, on United States-China Relations, you know, I was wondering if you could talk more about that organization. I mean, you mentioned it was founded in 1966 as a way to facilitate, um, you know, public education, understanding of, of China in the U.S. I was wondering if you talk a little bit more about that organization and similar ones that are sort of cropping up in this period um, and their role in, in trying to reestablish society to size, society to society contact uh, between the U.S. and China. Sure. Um so I think, as you say, there's a, a sort of crop of organizations that are founded in the late 1960s and into the early 1970s that advocate for American re-engagement with China. Some of those organizations, such as the Committee of Concerned Asian Scholars and somewhat later the US-China People's Friendship Association, are more on the political left and are coming out of a period of criticism of uh, US policy towards US policy in Vietnam, the war in, in Vietnam, and of criticism of the Nixon government and the Nixon government's initial decision to uh, to continue to to avoid direct contact um, with 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 China. But of course, you know, that changes in, in this period. But the National Committee is a sort of broader political church they don't take necessarily a firm stance on either US-China relations or for example on the Vietnam War and instead they are a group of people who are drawn together by a belief that there needs to be some level of, of reconnection between between the United States and, and China. Some of those people favour the, the similar pol- similar policies of people uh, like those in the Committee of Concerned Asian Scholars, but others, for example, continue to favour a relationship with Taiwan, with the Republic of China on Taiwan, while also believing that there's value in America reconnecting um, with with the PRC with Beijing. What you know, some of these like these initial, you know, people to people contacts, but also, um, you know, Nixon's visit to China, how is that being received in the United States? I mean, what's sort of the public mood around um, this rethinking of the Sino-American relationship? Yeah, and another good question. I think, I think we, it, it's hard to say, there were many different opinions about China at this point in time, and some of them were perhaps um, somewhat contradictory. But I think what is clear is that by the late 1960s and the early 1970s, there is a sense that the American attempt to completely isolate the United States from uh, the People's Republic of China has not been successful. China, the PRC, continues to exist in the world, and there and. and the sense that if, if you ignore uh, communist China, then eventually either it will go away or, or there'll be some restoration of, of free China that is the Republic of China, you know, no longer is an opinion that holds sway amongst the, the general populace. At the moment that Nixon decided to reach out to China, he was himself somewhat uncertain about what the uh, US public reaction to the Nixon-China initiative would be, and he was very encouraged by the reaction, for example, to the first uh, ping pong visit in, in 1971, believing that this meant that the positive reaction amongst the American public to this, uh, this meant that he could have this, this successful, politically successful opening to China. And I think what we see in the early 1970s is that he was correct and that the American public had perhaps a remarkable level of enthusiasm for reconnecting with uh, Chinese communists, not only on a geopolitical level. I think you know there's one argument that, that perhaps Nixon and others could make about the need to have this Cold War relationship um, with with Beijing, but not to have a, a closer societal relationship with Beijing. But that's not what happens. Instead, there is this broad reconnection between the two societies, and I think much of the American populace is. Uh, enthusiastic about, about this, and as I said, I think perhaps remarkably enthusiastic. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, you know, after the um, 
the success and, and, the, and the favorable reception of the, the Chinese ping pong team in the U.S. Um, I mean, you mentioned this earlier in our conversation, but what are some of the other types of, um, you know, visits and exchanges that are that are being organized uh, between the U.S. and China? And um, how are those sort of initiated and, and brought about? Sure. Um, so the types of exchanges uh, that, that are organized could perhaps be broadly uh, separated into cultural, scientific and eventually commercial contacts, although um, commercial contacts were perhaps a bit slower to, um, to take off in, in the 1970s. So the cultural contacts, um, you know, I mentioned the Philadelphia Orchestra's visit. There's visits um, by other musicians, by other performing artists. Um, there are visits by uh, Chinese, as I mentioned, acrobats. There's a performing arts troupe that is intended to visit in 1975, but that's cancelled, delayed until um, the later 1970s. And a array of other academic visits, some of which come under this cultural mandate that the National Committee holds, and then many that come under the mandate of the Committee uh, of the Committee for Scholarly Communication with the PRC, which is the non-governmental organization that oversaw uh, scientific and academic contacts between the US and China. So, oh, it, what is what is the understanding of of you know sort of these lower level contacts but still enormously consequential? You know, is there sort of an understanding of the diplomatic role that they're playing in in a thawing of the relationship here? Yes, I think there is a sense amongst both governments of the importance of of these contacts, and that's one of the aspects that got me interested in this in this project is when I was using US government archives, when I was using Chinese government documents, there was a lot of evidence that even high-level foreign policymakers, I mentioned Joe and I already, but Henry Kissinger under the Jimmy Carter administration, Zbigniew Brzezinski, these foreign policymakers spent a lot of time thinking and discussing these still non-governmental contacts between the two sides. So I think these foreign policymakers appreciate that at this moment where there are no official diplomatic relations between the two sides, official diplomatic relations are not established until 1979, these societal contacts between the two sides um, have a particularly important role in facilitating the deepening of not only the societal relationship, not only this transnational relationship um, between ordinary Chinese and Americans, but also in helping to underpin sort of a fragile diplomatic relationship between the two governments. Yeah. Uh, Sort of looking, you know, on the other side of it, you know, as more Americans are going to China, you know, what's the the Chinese reaction to this? I mean, really specifically thinking about the the Chinese public. I mean, is it as favorable as some of these visits um, of of Chinese folks to the United States? Or is there a a different sort of reaction there? I mean, how is our, um, you know, average Chinese folks as far as you can as far as you could see, how are they thinking about, um, you know, Americans coming back into China during this period? Another very good question. Um, So it is, of course, very difficult to get a true sense of what the the Chinese public, particularly sort of the ordinary Chinese public, would have felt about about many things at this moment in time, including, uh, including foreign policy. We do have some evidence that, that can help us get a partial answer to this question, though. One point that's worth mentioning is that even Americans that went to China before the Nixon visit reported that Chinese people often said to them that perhaps sort of Chinese propaganda had encouraged them to take the view that that China had a a confrontational relationship with the American government, but that China welcomed the American people and that there was a continuing friendship between Chinese people and, uh, and the American people. And I think what American visitors to China feel in the early 1970s when they go is curiosity on the part of, um, of the Chinese in, in China and, and warmth as well, though, um, in, in the visits that they, they, uh, they, they take to China. There is some archival evidence. There are some documents which shed light on on this question as well. For example, some of the most interesting documents I used in my research were 
from the Chinese Communist Party to lower level cadres talking about various different points in which Chinese policy, Chinese government policy had changed towards the United States and either attempting to explain this to lower level uh, parts of the party. So perhaps not ordinary Chinese, but still people sort of at a local level. Or alternatively, um, in some cases, even reporting on discussions that take place around these events. And I think one of the ways that the Chinese government successfully makes a case for uh, low-level cadres, but perhaps the Chinese public more broadly, being behind this initiative of reaching out to the United States, is this sense that this is the uh, consequence and the result of the success of Mao and the PRC's policies to the United States before, 19, before 1972, before in the 1950s and the 1960s, of resisting the American attempt to isolate and contain China. From the Chinese perspective, at least from the perspective of Chinese propaganda, it's depicted that it is Nixon that goes to China, it is Nixon that comes to China to, to meet Mao and to essentially in the Chinese telling, concede that the policy of the 1950s and the 1960s of isolating China had been a failure. So while there are there are many points in these documents about certain aspects of this relationship, you know, why are we dealing with the American imperialists when they continue to pursue, pursue their sort of uh, capitalist hegemony in the world and, and so forth, um, there is this sort of grand narrative that, uh, that China has won a great victory in persuading the Americans to have a relationship with, with China without China having to make any, any major uh, compromises, or at least that's how it's depicted in this propaganda. Right. I was, as you were, as you were sort of explaining that, I mean, I was wondering as well, if you found any evidence or had any understanding of, um, either the Americans or the Chinese governments trying to take advantage of the Chinese uh, diaspora in the United States in order to try and facilitate some of these contacts, or if ordinary people, which I think, you know, as you were indicating, is, is more difficult to, to ascertain for a number of reasons, were trying to sort of enrich the understanding, uh, you know, I guess particularly the United States, um, through, you know, family ties and communities of, of, of Chinese people that were living in America? So the Chinese diaspora played an important role in PRC foreign relations um, throughout, throughout the Cold War. And it's certainly something that the Chinese government uh, is, is interested in, um, both before and after uh, 1972. They play a somewhat uh, smaller role in my in the narrative of this book I think because they have what we might call a parallel narrative to um, the the reconnection between non-chinese diaspora members of um, of the United States and uh, and China and in contrast to to the Chinese diaspora that's partially because members of the Chinese diaspora were better able to themselves uh, individually reconnect with China. And this is something that they do do in the 1970s. They take advantage of the liberalization of ties between the two countries to, in many cases, visit themselves, uh, China, to reconnect with members of their extended family who are, who are left in China, and to generally um, redevelop uh, their relationship with their homeland, whether that's the, the land in which they were born or, or their genera generational sort of ancestral homeland that their parents or grandparents um, were connected to. And often members of the Chinese diaspora uh, helped facilitate many of these broader exchange contacts. Some of the first, uh, Chi first American scientists to have sort of close cooperative relationships with China were members of the Chinese diaspora. Um, Jenning Yang and, and others were people that had moved um, to the United States and then use their connections in China and in the United States to facilitate the, the rebuilding of the relationship between the two. So as I said, it's a sort of a parallel story, but it is one that overlaps with mine and, and I, I try to tell it in part um, in the book as well. Thinking, um, you know, about some of the higher level politics again, you know, when, when Nixon resigns in August 1974 as a result of the Watergate scandal, I mean, what sort of impact does this have on the on the thawing of relations between the two sides? Um, you know, does his successor 
Gerald Ford, you know, to try and continue this policy. You know, Kissinger uh, remains as Secretary of State. Um, is there a sort of a shift in, in the way the Americans are approaching it? And, and conversely, how do the Chinese interpret Nixon's resignation um, as potentially impacting uh, this diplomatic process? So it, it certainly does impact on the relationship. And uh, the Chinese were both confused and disappointed by Watergate and by the scandal that took down that took down Nixon, who was the man that they developed this relationship with. One of the arguments of the book is uh, that in the period even before Nixon's resignation, going back to late 1973, stretching all the way to the early years of the Carter administration um, in 1977, there is really a, a breakdown in the geostrategic relationship between the two sides. We now have the documents from Kissinger's you know, many visits to, to China, his negotiations with Chinese representatives um, in the United States and elsewhere. And it becomes clear that what had been a very close productive relationship between the US and China based on geostrategic realignment had become at best a sort of passive relationship in which geo, the geostrategic argument for closer ties had ceased to push the, the two sides towards the establishment of diplomatic ties, normalization of the relationship. So Gerald Ford does go, go to China. He goes to China in December 1975. And this is what this is a visit that had originally been intended to be taken by Nixon. Nixon had planned to have a second visit in which normalization would be agreed, in which all these issues would be settled. And instead, it is Ford that goes. And normalization is certainly not agreed. Almost nothing is agreed during uh, a three-day period of negotiations in which um, there is perhaps significant acrimony between, between the two sides, or certainly there's acrimony in the negotiations around, around this visit. So one of the arguments of my book is that in this period between 1973 and, the, the, and 1977-1978, it's other aspects of the relationship that take on a greater importance. And that's because for a number of different reasons, uh, the Chinese government is less interested in developing a relationship um, with, uh, with the US government purely based on this sort of Cold War geostrategy. They're, they're less convinced that the US government is truly committed to a close relationship with China rather than simply exploiting China to get close to the Soviet Union. They're less convinced that the United States can be the sort of geostrategic counterweight that they thought that they they might be in the early 1970s and so forth. So talk to us then a little bit more about how some of the, the lower level exchanges, um, but as you say, really taking on a, a new importance, how are these keeping the the opening of the of the Chinese American relationship going in the absence of you know progress uh, in the government to government relationship uh, at, that you just talked about so on the one hand the breakdown in the in the overall relationship in the uh, high diplomatic relationship is felt in in lower level ties so in a way they do reflect this downturn in the relationship in cultural ties the national committee finds it increasingly hard to negotiate um, cultural exchanges with with the chinese for example the chinese essentially sabotage a 19 as i think i mentioned earlier a 1975 performing arts troupe by introducing a, a, pro, a song about the conquering of Taiwan by uh, by the PRC, which essentially sort of forces the hand of the National Committee to, to end the to cancel the exchange. But on the other hand, scientific exchanges continue in this period, and they continue in this period relatively uninterrupted by this breakdown in the in the high level relationship, even deepening in this period. And an example of how this how these scientific ties um, are, are connected to the high diplomatic relationship is during the Ford summit itself, in which the only productive conversation that Deng Xiaoping, who is the main interlocutor that Ford has during this visit, the only moment that they really agree on anything tangible is when Ford and Kissinger discuss Chinese purchases of American computers and in general American, uh, access to American technology and American scientific knowledge and Ford and Kissinger promise Deng that they will work to facilitate a more liberal US export policy 
on, on computers. And I think that represented a broad push by the Chinese side to use their relationship with the United States, with the United States government, but then also very significantly with uh, US universities, US research labs, with US companies that were researching technology to gain access both to physical technology, in this case, they, they were trying to purchase computers, but also, I think, very significantly to the human knowledge that would allow the Chinese to make use of this technology, would allow them to uh, to develop their, their own human knowledge about, about science and technology and to, to benefit from this what I think is perhaps quite extraordinary levels of access um, to American science and technology and American knowledge in this period. Yeah, I was wondering if you could sort of unpack that even more, especially, you know, with the, con- not necessarily talking about them, but this has a lot of contemporary relevance, right? Because, um, you know, the, the United States is really locked out. Um, you know, Chinese academics, they've been trying to really prevent Chinese students from studying at American universities. The Biden administration um, continues to ban a lot of exports of American technology to China, especially, um, you know, around computer chips and semiconductors um, in an attempt to stymie, uh, you know, Chinese um uh, economic growth and and their ability to compete with the United States in a number of arenas. So, how you know going now going back into the seventies, how um, how were both sides really benefiting from this scientific exchange, um, and and how is this you know helping China? Um, but also how are how are you know conversely how is um, how are American universities um, really thinking about? having these high-level scientific exchanges and academic exchanges, and, and, and what's their reaction to that? So I think that, that point about U.S. benefit is an important one. I think it's something that can be forgotten in some of the contemporary discussions about scientific cooperation between the two sides, because American scientists are also very enthusiastic about reconnecting with their with their colleagues in China. They might not have got the same sort of maybe tangible, immediate benefits that uh, that that the Chinese got that I that I already mentioned, but they did get benefits such as access, being able to do some level of field work in China, which was so important to social scientists, for to American social scientists, for example, to gathering or at least having access to data in China. One of the groups of American scientists who were very interested and actually have a productive relationship with the Chinese in the 1970s is seismologists and being able to access Chinese records about um, seismological activity in China is is really important um, when you're considering this on a sort of global scale. They've been they've been cut off from that data in China for for two decades, and getting access to it is is really valuable. In terms of uh, how are they thinking about about this in the in the context sort of the control of knowledge and the control of technology, I think as I already alluded to, there were very limited. Uh, controls on what China was able to get access to in the 1970s in terms of these academic exchanges. Now, the level of academic exchange was not perhaps so broad that this became a, a matter of huge concern. But already by 1977, 1978, there are some amongst the American scientific community who are saying that the United States is giving essentially unfettered access to the most sensitive laboratories that it has, both in companies and in universities, to Chinese researchers for potentially sort of weeks at a weeks at a time, without asking any questions about what they might be doing with with that knowledge. And it's really only after normalisation and from 1979 that uh, there begins to be perhaps a higher level of scrutiny of of Chinese access um, to to American knowledge in the in these. Places And this mirrors, as I already mentioned, a generous approach to export controls when it comes to physical technology. Kissinger was involved in in a change in US um, export policy to China in which China was favoured over the Soviet Union in terms of uh, exporting technology to communist countries on the basis that China was less likely to make use of this technology dual-use technology um, for military ends, or certainly the unspoken part perhaps being sort of military ends that the United States government would not approve of. And this led already by the uh, late 1970s to, as I said, China being preferred over the Soviet Union in terms of being given US government approval for the sale of sensitive technology. Mm. 
And is is sort of that that technological exchange? I mean, you you, you mentioned this earlier in the conversation. Is that having any commercial impact? Um, you know, I know that's not necessarily a focus of of the work you're doing, but is there any sort of bleeding over into you know trying to get that part of the relationship going at all? Yes, and uh, U.S. Companies, while concerned about allowing uh, Chinese researchers to come to their laboratories and um, you know take take notes that might lead them to replicate American technology, they are also very interested in selling China this technology. There is lobbying not only by Deng Xiaoping and the Chinese about the sale of, for example, those computers, but also by American businesses that are keen to get new contracts with uh, with the Chinese and to to sell expensive American technology in significant numbers, significant amounts, and significant volumes um, to, to the Chinese. At this moment in time, we're still talking relatively small figures. At one point, um, Sino-American trade in the 1970s peaks, I think, just over 1 billion US dollars. But for the most part, we're talking sort of hundreds of millions of US dollars. And, uh, and technology is only a part of a part of those sales. But as at many other times in the US-China relationship, the prospects for Sino-American trade are also something that uh, that inspire and motivate US companies to push for a deepening of the relationship because it's believed that in the near future, China's appetite for buying American technology will, will only grow. It's sort of Going into the, the the latter part of the 1970s, you know, we have a you know, mass a massive change of leadership in the United States. Uh, the Republicans are now out of power. You have Jimmy Carter coming in in 1977, Democratic Party. Um, you know, on the flip side, uh, Mao dies in 1976, and you start to see a leadership transition uh, in China uh, that eventually has uh, Deng Xiaoping sort of emerging as the Chinese uh, paramount leader. How does how does this change in leadership impact the diplomatic uh, opening between the two countries and that path to normalization, which, as you mentioned, uh, finally uh, comes to fruition in 1979? I think it does have a significant influence on the relationship, and I think it's not a surprise that uh, the, the two leadership transitions are followed by a normalization agreement less than. Uh, less than two years after Jimmy Carter takes office and, and just over two years after Mao dies. On the Chinese side, I think the key is the post-Mao um, approach to opening to the world. This is a policy that we often associate almost exclusively with Deng Xiaoping, but actually there was perhaps more consensus amongst the post-Mao leadership and even amongst some who were in the leadership, even in the Mao period, about the need to to open China, at least in terms of, as we've just been talking about, for example, technology. Um, But this is only encouraged in the post-Mao period. Hua Guofeng is the initial post-Mao leader, and him and Deng Xiaoping are jockeying for power, but I also think that they're more or less unified in their belief that the relationship with the outside world, including the relationship with the United States, should be used to facilitate China's rapid economic modernization. And I think one particular point that I think is is, uh, connected to Deng is Deng's willingness as was already evident in negotiations with, with Gerald Ford when Mao was still alive in 1975, his willingness to bring the desire to have access to American society, both technology but also knowledge, into negotiations over the political relationship um, between the two countries. And I think part of the reason why Deng makes some key compromises in the normalization agreement of December 1978, for example, allowing the United States to continue selling arms to Taiwan after normalization is because of his impatience to have deep level access to American society uh, and his belief that normalization would, would facilitate this. On the American side, I think there's a lot of continuity between Jimmy Carter uh, and uh, and Nixon and Ford when it comes to China policy. But I also think there's some new thinking that comes in during the transition. I've already alluded to how the relationship between Kissinger and his interlocutors had more or less broken down, become quite stale in the mid-1970s. 
Zbigniew Brzezinski, who is uh, the National Security Advisor under Carter and who really takes uh, a handle uh, of, uh, of US-China policy, brings uh, new, new thinking, as I said, to the relationship. And one point that I argue in the book is that Brzezinski, Carter, and those that worked in the Carter administration recognized that there was a close link between exchange contacts, between the societal relationship between the two sides, and the political relationship uh, between the two governments. And Brzezinski successfully exploits this moment in which Deng Xiaoping and other Chinese leaders are interested in reconnecting US and China um, on a societal level to push forward the normalization talks and to achieve the normalization agreement of 1978. Maybe one last point I'm is that one of the reasons that Brzezinski and Carter can think about this is that in during the transition, they recruited for the White House many people that had worked in some of the exchange organizations uh, that we were previously discussing. So the Committee on Scholarly Communication with the PRC, the chairman of that organization, but also one of the most longstanding staff members, Anne Keatley, and the chairman is Frank Press. Both of these people come to work for Carter and to head up um, science policy more broadly, but including in relation to to China. And their role in the White House, I think, allows for this connection, this holistic connection between exchange contacts and the high diplomatic relationship that I think helps achieve normalization. Yeah, um, I I was wondering, I mean, this might be self-evident to to some of our listeners, but... um, running that risk. I was wondering if you could sort of talk about how normalization impacts the lower level ties. I mean, do you see, you know, an explosion um, in uh, people to people contact and in sort of the broader societal contact? Is it a more gradual process? How does that um, really come to fruition um, with the with the Sino-American relationship becoming normalized in 1979? So I think Normalization does, of course, change the societal relationship in some important ways. But I think in other ways, it perhaps confirms some existing trends. So in terms of sort of exploding the level of of contacts, if you look at a graph, um, sure, these contacts continue going up, but they're already going up quite sharply um, in the period before normalization. So scientific contacts, for example, the number of exchange delegations, I think tripled in 1978, the year in which normalization is agreed but doesn't take effect and only agreed in December. They They triple from the level in 1977. So already uh, scientific exchanges were rapidly accelerating um, in the years before normalization. And this reflected trends that were already evident in in the mid-1970s as well. And that, I think, reflects more broadly the sense that while these ties are almost non-existent at the beginning of the 1970s, and while they're you know, e- even uh, even deeper in the 1980s, they, they already increase in, in quite a lot of uh, quite a lot of speed over the course of the 1970s. And I think more broadly, normalization did change the nature of uh, societal ties. No longer was it the case that there weren't official diplomatic relations. No longer was it the case that there weren't embassies in the two capitals. So the US government and the Chinese government were able to take an even closer role and a more, particularly on the American side, a more official role in these uh, in these societal contacts. But as we've also discussed, the, the U.S. government, certainly not the Chinese government, um, that they had not been uninterested in these ties before 1979. So again, I think this is sort of an acceleration of trends that were already uh, uh, present before. So the, that, that isn't to say that the contacts of the 1980s aren't, aren't different to the contacts of the 1970s. I think they are. But I think it's not as simple as saying a post and pre-normalization relationship in, in terms of societies, um, you know, is, is so starkly different. I think many of the changes are already in, in effect, or at least emerging before 1979. Mm. Uh, switching, switching gears a little bit, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, what it's like to, to do a project like this from sort of this um, you know, quote unquote, transnational perspective. I mean, I think, first of all, um, can you talk to us about what transnational history is? Um, and then, you know, following on from that, um, how you approach a project like this, um, you know, sort of differently from a more traditional, you know, sort of top, more top down, high level uh, approach to, to a, this type of uh, history. 
So as you, uh, as your question perhaps alludes to, I think transnational history is, is a pretty expansive term, and I think it incorporates a lot of different approaches to history, perhaps reflecting the term I think is expansive because it reflects the complexity of what it's what it's uh, trying to define, what it's trying trying to look at. So I'm not claiming, I certainly wouldn't claim that this book was uh, the same as many other transnational histories that have been written um, in recent years. But I do think it, it is transnational, perhaps in at least a couple of senses. It's transnational in the sense that I'm looking at non-state actors and private individuals who are moving across national boundaries. And I think that's one core aspect of, of transnational history. It's also transnational in the sense that many of the actors that I'm looking at, while they simultaneously do act as unofficial representatives of their two countries, I also think they're members of epistemic or professional communities that bridge the divide between their two two countries. And I think as well, these exchanges, cultural scientific exchanges, help build this professional epistemic um, identity even further, even if they are, these exchanges are structured as bilateral contacts. So I think, I mean, in terms of how I approach this as different from um, a diplomatic history perspective, I think something that is at the, the core of this is, is the source base in which, uh, which I, that, that I used. It wasn't, I, I did use government archives. I used government archives um, in detail in both the United States and China. And I think government archives are still very important in terms of understanding um, societal ties in a range of different ways that we've already discussed. But I also used the records of non-governmental organizations of the National Committee on, of the Committee on Scholarly Communication and as well of private individuals who were uh, participants in these exchanges, who often had roles in these in these organisations, and then finally, I also used uh, direct contact with with some of these these uh, individuals who'd been to China in the nineteen seventies. I interviewed some. I used the unpublished manuscripts or the unpublished documents of, of others, their notes on their visits to China, um, for for example. But methodologically, I would say that. While that is a different approach to, to how diplomatic or perhaps traditional diplomatic historians um, approach, uh, approach their own archival work, I think the transnational history that I'm doing here is, is not so far away from diplomatic history. And I think in, in ways uh, there is a value in, in connecting a study of the transnational connections between societies and the governmental connections between societies. Because I think one of the arguments of the book is that these transnational contacts, these societal contacts, were very important to the diplomatic relationship, but also the two governments had an important role in in transnational contacts between the two societies too. And even if these, even if perhaps, for example, some of the American protagonists I look at, certainly the Chinese protagonists, even if they uh, were interested in, in reconnecting simply with the other side's society, they couldn't ignore their, their government or the other government's policies and developing a, a meaningful, productive relationship with the two governments was very important to these transnational actors, even if in their lives they were quite, quite separate, quite distant from, uh, from their own government. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the the really key strengths, um, you know, of of your work is is making it clear that um, sort of this rather neglected element of the U.S.-China relationship in terms of our understanding of it during this period, um, you really can't think about these things in isolation. Uh, you know, as you as we've been talking about throughout this conversation, you know, both of these things were complement complementing one another. They were having an impact on one another. And, you know, as we talked about earlier, when, uh, you know, the diplomatic negotiations really were starting to, to stall and encountering a lot of difficulties, it was the, the cultural exchanges, the people-to-people contacts that really kept uh, some of the momentum behind trying to thaw this relationship out. Um, and, and I think that really kind of changes our understanding of how we um, Think about the remaking of this relationship and and how we get to normalization uh, in a sense in 1979. I, you know, I, I I was wondering if you could also talk about too, you know, some of the challenges of of doing work like this. Um, because I think some of our listeners will be less familiar with it. I mean, uh, there are different types of um, you know difficulties or, or challenges that you found in, in trying to to tell this narrative and, and, and craft this story. 
In terms of what we were just talking about and the um, array of different sources that historians use when they're trying to trace transnational history, when they're trying to trace societal connections, I think you know one of the simple difficulties is that you use you have to use sources from a lot of different archives. So I used you know, nearly twenty different archives, and that you need that sort of diversity of uh, of repositories, a diversity of, of sources to get a full spectrum view of these types of contacts. You know, that's more a question of, of digging, of, of spending time in the archives, spending time, you know, traveling to, to these archives. That's relatively straightforward. I think the, perhaps the more complex methodological problem is then placing these different levels of the relationship, these different levels of, uh, of contact between the US and China, in my case, in conversation with one another in a way that that makes sense to the reader and that shows the causation um, in the relationship uh, in an effective way. And I think I found that to be the the much more sort of sophisticated challenge was was unpicking at what times causation ran in some directions or how a certain change in the governmental relationship or in the societal relationship was felt at other levels. And then how to communicate that to a reader in a way that wasn't too confusing um, and that perhaps also reflected how compelling many of these sources are because I think I was driven to use many of the sources from from individuals, um, whether that was interviewing them or whether it was their personal papers, by how rich their their stories were. And we we want to try and include those types of stories in in our work, but in a way that also connects with sort of an analytical rigor of, of using other types of sources too. Right. You know, as we're as we're coming to the the end of our conversation, um, you know, I was wondering if you could sort of tie some of this into some of the contemporary developments that we're seeing in the U.S.-China relationship, you know, which are, you know, at historic lows, uh, and we're really seeing that societal contact. Um, in a lot of ways, um, really almost non-existent. I mean, what can, what should, what should policymakers today, um, and and folks on both sides of this relationship? I mean, what can they learn from the story that you're trying to to tell here in terms of the importance of trying to maintain contact and maintain exchange uh, between uh, both countries, especially as this relationship um, is is one of the most important uh, geopolitical ones in the world uh, today in the 21st century. So, uh, of course, is you know something that many of us are thinking about in the context of the deterioration of U.S.-China relations and as well of the separation that's been imposed by COVID, which perhaps finally now is is going to come to an end in in the near future and Americans and others will be able to travel to China again in a way that they were able to uh, before before 2020. I think uh, there's a certain sense in which the circumstances that we're we're in right now uh, mirror those at the beginning of my book, that mirror those of, of 1971 in the sense that you know, there has been, in, in our case, a relatively short, perhaps just um, you know, nearly uh, just three years of, of separation between the, the two sides, in, in the case in 1970, two decades of separation, and also of a relationship in which there's still some, some basis for hostility and, and so forth. And I think what the book suggests is, in quite different historical um, circumstances, but what it does suggest is that the relationship can can recover from uh, a nadir and can recover from periods of of isolation and um, of uh, of hostility. And I sometimes hear people say now that the U.S.-China relationship is at the worst level that it that it has ever been or that it's ever been since 1949, which I think is, is inaccurate, given that the two sides have fought on um, the other sides of the Korean War. To give just one striking example, but then also had you know two decades of of significant hostility and, and suspicion and, and no level of contact whatsoever. So I think um, that, yeah, there is a, uh, a connection there. But I also think the lessons of looking at exchanges or societal contacts in the 1970s are not simple lessons. They're not, oh, if we have deeper contact again after COVID, um, that will offset, that it will undo some of the tension between the two governments on a uh, geostrategic level or some of the 
very serious, very fundamental disagreements between the two governments, between many people in the two societies. That is not the case. And uh, I don't think the story of the 1970s suggests that contact brings about understanding automatically. In many cases, uh, contact can can lead to, to misunderstandings. It can, uh, can deepen stereotypes. But I also think that on balance, having contact in the 1970s did allow many Americans to develop a better understanding of China than they had in the 1960s and the 1950s, and then to use that better understanding to have a a more effective, frank relationship um, with the other side. And I think vice versa. I think many in China um, had a more productive relationship with the United States as a result of the contact that was resumed in the 1970s. So it won't be easygoing, and I don't think many aspects of the US-China relationship are likely to be easygoing in the near term, but I do think that as the artificial barriers imposed by COVID um, are, are, are lifted, hopefully, in the near term, we can begin the hard work of developing a continuing relationship with China that doesn't mean the United States, other countries compromising their own values, um, their own uh, objections to certain policies of the Chinese government, while also seeing the value in, in working together with many within uh, within China. Yeah, um, you know, you, it's it's difficult. I think as your as your book rightfully um, and very persuasively argues, it's it's difficult to have a relationship when you have little to no contact. And I and I was I was personally hopeful after the G twenty summit. In Indonesia last November, um, that uh, President Biden and, and President Xi um, were, were understanding that more. Of course, there's been some setbacks now with the uh, the balloon incident uh, in the United States and, and a lot of the issues now that have happened since then. Um, but I think those are, are very wise words uh, to, to policymakers and decision makers on, on both sides of uh, the Pacific um, as they're thinking their way forward uh, in this really consequential and important relationship. Um, so I think that's a great place for us to end. Uh, the book is Improbable Diplomats, How Ping Pong Players, Musicians, and Scientists Remade U.S.-China Relations. Uh, it was published in December 2022 with Cambridge University Press. It is available now. Um, Pete, Thanks so much again for coming on the pod. It was great to have you. Thanks, Grant. I really enjoyed our conversation.